I mean, my, my definition included the opportunity cost, right? And that's where my feeling of loss was massive. There's a, um, it's a whole bunch of founder based psychology about how entrepreneurs interpret failure and why they put so much energy into things. And a lot of that's because they blur the line between what they're doing and who they are. And that's a really, really positive thing in that you see immense amounts of energy. I am willing to go to any length because I'm not doing something. This represents who I am. And if I don't give it 100%, and if I fail because I don't give it 100%, then I am a failure. It's not I failed at this. I am a failure because the, the line is completely disappeared. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Mental Purpose Podcast. I'm your host, Ian Lobos. Today is an incredible show with a guy who has a resume that is pages long, and the guy's in his 40s. Let me tell you how amazing today's episode is. It, I, I, I couldn't even get to, I think I only got to about 7 to 10% of the questions I had for, for my guest, Dave Sellinger. Now, if you don't know who Dave is, let me just tell you how awesome this guy is is and how impactful he's been to the world. So successful in business and life, I'm going to give you some of his business accomplishments. And we're going to talk about both the business and the life accomplishments in this episode. And, and yeah, it's, it's absolutely incredible. So let's talk about this little company he worked for called Amazon. He was an early employee working directly under Jeff Bezos and co-invented Amazon advertising, which now generates billions of dollars in revenue. Okay, that's one. The guy started programming at six years old, by the way. So, you know, we, we talk about that and we talk about being an awkward kid and we talk about making friends and, and feelings and we talk a little about autism in the spectrum and we talk about ADD in the beginning of the episode. And then we get into to social norms and, and we talk about kids in college and it's just a it's just and being obsessed right being being obsessed and having a drive for something that isn't your identity okay a big big distinction there we're going to talk really deeply about that i mean you heard in the in the intro clip ma ma massive power from this guy let's talk about the other little company that he that he co-founded he co-founded and ran a little real estate brokerage called redfin you know, Redfin is a major player today. However, Redfin was the category innovator with movable maps and, and ways to gather and populate data. Redfin revolutionized the real estate industry. And this guy co-founded it and ran it. Now worth, I think, $5 billion or something like that. He revolutionized the shopping experience for Macy's and Office Depot. And now the guy is inventing the next big thing in home security. His company, Deep Sentinel, is an AI-based home protection technology and service company. Look, I could tell you a lot more things about Dave. I'm going to tell you right now, I was blown away by this interview. It was so interesting because the guy is so down to earth and cool and fun to talk to. And the information coming from him is so high level because it's been refined so, so fast over time. And that's why, that's why the episode is, is the price we pay for wisdom. It's not always a negative price. It's just the price we pay. It's the, it's the, it's the, the, 
experience, the process of learning and growing and evolving and, and getting wisdom. It's the process of our life. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Other things we're going to talk about are um, morning routines, morning routines, and we're going to get very detailed into the type of journal. That's right. The type of journal that Dave uses because he's very specific. So stay tuned to the end of the episode for that. All right. Look, you know where to find us. We've got amazing stuff happening at the Mental Purpose community. We are growing like crazy. We've got free giveaways right now, our purpose-driven formula, little mini course, a little buffet to get you started or just get you a little bit more knowledge. Get into the mental purpose community on Facebook. Say, hey, I want the ebook and the mini course. We'll get you that for free. We've got our masterminds that are kicking right now. We've got our retreats coming up this fall and all throughout the rest of this year. We've got very limited one-on-one -on -one coaching. You can find it all at menonpurpose.net. That's menonpurpose.net. Don't mess around. People who are on purpose, take action. You want to be a man on purpose? Take action right now. All right? And enjoy this episode. We'll see you. All right, Dave. This is, uh, I told you before we started recording, this is super exciting for me because you've been in some really cool stuff and you're, how old are you? 40, young 40s, right? I'm 44. Okay. Young, super young. We're talking Amazon, Redfin. Like those two are companies that I don't care if you're a real estate agent or not, you know Redfin. And I want to get into I want to get into that big stuff. First, let's give the audience a background on you. And you know, I was reading your bio yeah. and it's it's really interesting the way that you had hyper focus when you were a kid and I understand that because I did as well and and people didn't celebrate that. So let's go back to that. <laughs> like, yeah, right. I was weird. I was, you know, the bad kid in class. I was all these different things, but I was just, I just didn't give a shit about socializing with you. I didn't give a shit about what you thought about me or if I fit in. I didn't care about any of that. It just didn't process in my brain. It got programmed into my brain that I was supposed to care about that. Mm -hmm. And I learned to care about that. Uh, and then learn to not care about that in my older, in my older age. So like, take us back to that first computer, right? You're six. Yeah. So, yeah. So I got, I got my first computer on six. My mom bought it. It was a, uh, it was an XT leading edge model D, um, you know, had a four color screen, sweet monitor weighed more than a, you know, kind of mid-sized human being. And uh, a monitor, by the way, for those of you that are listening and are under under 30, that's like an iPad without the computer inside of it. It's just the screen and you can't right. touch it. And if you touch it, your mom spanks you. So that's, you know, that's what I got. Um, in terms of, you know, the focus, kind of getting into that question, I have a, a, a kind of a, at least a self-observed kind of unique perspective on this, which is um, that... I am on the autism spectrum. And so my self-perception is, I've, I've learned this only recently, it's just very different than the way other people perceive me. And so I didn't care about other people's perspective um, per se. Uh, it, when you read my bio, it may come out that way. But in fact, I, I'm actually incredibly sensitive. Um, I'm actually very, very emotionally sensitive. I was very concerned with why um, I had trouble connecting with people when I was little um, and in middle school kind of reached ahead. Like I didn't, 
I didn't understand why, you know, here I am, I'm the nicest guy in the class and the girls don't like me, you know, that, that kind of perspective. Like, why do you go for the, for the mean guys? And, um, and that mattered a ton to me. And it took a while of, of um, looking at myself and looking at my behavior to kind of start to fit in a bit and actually put a whole bunch of energy into fitting in. The focus, though, came very naturally um, because that um, that autistic nature is, as I'm, for those of you that aren't really familiar with the spectrum, it, it, it drives you into various forms of, of the arts where you have people who are on the spectrum and they, they can't speak English very well, but they can play yeah. Mozart after hearing it one time, end to end, both hands, every chord correct, you know, yeah. like repeat a seven, seven minute long song. And uh, in my particular case, where it pushed me was towards mechanics and computers. And so again, that's kind of a long answer to your question about getting the first computer. The moment that thing came into our lives, I, f I, I mean, I, I remember feeling it. It wasn't something that happened and it was kind of part of opening up my mind. It was like, something that I could actually connect with and create. Got on. it. That, and that's, that's why the focus kind of came naturally is because it was my artistic yeah. outlet. I started programming, not to program, but to create. Yeah, that's so cool. You know, it's, it's interesting because I got, I just got off the phone with my doctor and he was like, man, I'm, I'm like solidly <laughs> impressed with the level of, of all in that you can give. Like it's obsessive. And I said, yeah, it's, it's beneficial in some areas of my life and it's not beneficial in others. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so yeah. he's like, I just don't have any patients that I tell do this and you don't skew the test at all. You do exactly this at the time I tell you so that when I come back to you and say, cool, how are your symptoms? Like you can tell me exactly what happened and that nothing was skewed. And, uh, and I've always thought that that was for a lot of my life. I thought it was weird. I thought I was weird. Like, why don't people obsess over shit like I do? Why don't people get into this stuff like I do? Why are they all or why aren't they all or nothing? They like go in and out. And I think I was in and out of like different sports and different activities. Yet when I'm in it, I am in it. And when I'm out, I'm out. And there's no real middle ground. Do you, do you feel that way too? There's just not a lot of middle ground. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that was actually how I discovered I have autism was, was I got married and my wife and I, we would agree we're going to do X, right? And if you're going to do X, you do it 100% of the time, 100% of the way. And you stop doing anything that prevents you from doing X. And uh, there you go, right? Like, is there more for us to discuss? Why are we still talking about this? And why am I doing 100% of it? And you're right. doing it 50%. And uh, and, I, and I, after a while, that you know, that doesn't work out super well in a relationship such as a marriage, it, you know, as I'm sure you've also learned and many, many human beings have learned over the years, but th there's an element of that kind of in, in all of us. But if you do that all the time with everything yeah. always, which is the way I am, it's really, really yeah. hard to be married to that. And I, I started researching it and I found these stories about people that were like that. And, and we developed these, like, I, I also developed some weird patterns and uh, those those patterns that you go through, um, like the way I shut down the house, I have a very like, like an OCD. I used to shut down like the house every night, so yeah. Everything gets done, yeah. 
and I don't have OCD, um, but a lot of people kind of call, call uh, kind of colloquially call it that. But when you look at kind of the sum of these things, uh, it started looking a lot like high-functioning autism. And I read this account of this man who wrote his own story about how he discovered it later in life. And, um, you know, again, kind of going back to caring about other people, I care intensely about other people. And the reason most people don't realize that I have autism is because I've programmed myself using my autism to make myself fit in. So specifically, one of the key indicators for autism that doctors test for is do you look people in the eyes? And I do. And so I was never diagnosed. You know why I look people in the eyes? Not because it comes natural to me, but because I trained myself over the yeah. course of three years to do it. Because if I don't do it, I don't have friends. Interesting. Uh, why do I ask people questions about their feelings? Not because it comes natural to me, because I don't. <laughs> I, I won't naturally do that. But I observed, like, hey, the people that fit in and they're popular, they do that. And and I found actually now as a business person, as I've gotten older, developing those relationships and asking those questions makes me more successful. It makes my employees feel more connected to me. It makes my friends feel more connected to me. It makes my family obviously more connected to me. But it's not my natural yeah. instinct. I have to literally have a program inside of my head that says, you're about to talk about yourself. Did somebody else just say something? Hey, why don't you ask them about what they said instead of talking about yourself? And it's, I mean, it's literally like yeah. this loop that's running in my head a hundred percent of the time. And so, you know, again, your, your question this is all going back to your question about focus. Um, it, it's a weird question in that, I actually, my, my activities were very focused, but my energy, I had to spend tons and tons of energy on yeah. fitting in socially because it just was so incredibly not natural. Was it just awkward or, or uncomfortable or you just thought, I'll give you what I thought. Oh no, it was yeah. sad. It was depressing. Like I was depressed in middle school. I, I felt like a complete loner. I did not get along with people. When I met people that were like myself, I got in fights. I went to this camp called Computer Camp. And yes, right, like made tons of cool kids went to Computer Camp, by the way, in case you're wondering, tons of them. And uh, especially in 1983 or 1886 or whatever it was, right? Like computers were the cool of the cool. So I went to Computer Camp. It was at University of Oregon in, um, in Eugene, Oregon. Go Ducks. And uh, there was a guy named Eric J. Schiff, and he was a computer instructor at University of Oregon. He decided to start this camp for kids who felt like they didn't fit in wherever they were at, and they could come here and meet other kids that did computers. And I remember there was this kid named Dustin, and I was in, I think, fourth grade, and Dustin was exactly like me. And instead of becoming friends, we fought. We fought so much. And I remember this uh, one time Eric pulled me aside and he said, that's got to suck. And I said, it does. I hate this. I hate everything about it. And it's all his fault. And he said, how about this? I want you to just take 30 minutes and you're going to sit in this room all by yourself. I'm going to come back in 30 minutes. I want you to think about everything that you have in common with Dustin. And um, because I think what you're running into is that you guys are too yeah. similar. It's not that you're different because he's going to say the exact same thing about you and he's in the other room doing the same thing. And it was this huge eye-opening moment for me. Uh, again, I think it was about eight or nine, nine years old. And, um, and I still, I, I owe Eric this huge thank you. I've tried to get in touch with him a bunch of times. And um, 
And it was when I realized that my natural instincts for getting along with people were <laughs> wrong and I needed to just fundamentally change them. Um, and it had become, again, to kind of go back to your question about like whether that was just awkward, it was awkward. Like I would do stuff that was super weird. If there was a conflict in front of us, right? You know, somebody did something wrong or cut in front of us in line at the, at the grocery store. I wasn't the person that said, hey, excuse me, you cut in front of me. I was the person that was like, oh, shoot, I'm super sorry. Did I just punch you in the face and knock you down because you cut in front of me? I rescind my apology because you cut in front of me. No, like that, that, it, was, right. it was bad. I had no context <laughs> to the world around me. Got it. Yeah, you know what? It's it's interesting because I, I feel like there's not a lot of people that understand how my mind works and how I'm not happy if things are off out of skew or off kilter. And it's uh it's just it's interesting the stuff you talk about with high functioning autism. I think all the ADD, ADHD diagnoses that were in the 80s there's a a percentage of them that probably should have been high functioning autism. Dude, I, so I, I've spent a ton of time thinking about this. There's, there's a, um, this is a total aside. I just started watching this show on Netflix called how to change your yeah, mind. I saw that. It's based on a book. Uh, no, not yet, but I, you I watch it on my wish list. Uh, it, okay. It, it's, it goes a little further than I've gone in my past explorations. But if, if you think about the diagnoses that we're getting right now and the quantity of diagnoses that we're getting that are you know, social disorders, emotional disorders, ADHD, attention disorders. Uh, yep. It's up and to the right, right? Like it's, it's, it's massive. Interestingly enough, when you think about kind of drugs and the interaction between drugs and humanity, and by the way, big caveat here, I am not advocating for the use of drugs. Yep. I'm making an observation. Um, there are two drugs that we have demonized in America and that I think are, you know, rightfully have problems but that may have been the reason we now have these problems. And they are not surprisingly a massive short-term stimulant and a massive yep. short-term depressant, yep. alcohol and tobacco. And what we've replaced them with is pharmaceutical grade versions of these that, uh, that are harder to get and cause abuse and like have these other issues with them. And, and it makes me wonder, like I'm looking at my, one of my best friends, he used to smoke cigarettes and now he's having to take ADHD medicine. He's 40 years old. He just quit smoking. Four, he's 43. Quit smoking four years ago and now he's on ADHD medicine to compensate for it. And I was like, well, that's interesting. And now he's depressed too because smoking actually created a social yeah, environment yeah. for him too. You know, are we are we accidentally creating these things for ourselves? No, Again, it's cool. It's a, a cool concept. I like where you're going with that. Like, but the, the question that this, this um, uh, Netflix show asks, how to change your mind, is, you know, what are the chemicals and what is this interaction between our chemistry, our society, our rules, our norms, our mores? And then are we playing into a, an entirely pharmaceutical grade, kind of the, the new drugs of the future when we, we may have had other solutions available to us? And again, like, I know for a fact that smoking causes lung cancer. I have asthma. I hate smoking. I hate the smell of it. I've taught my kids to hate it. But then you still have to ask the question. Like we went from a population where, I don't know, 60% yeah. of people smoked over <laughs> dinner at the restaurant. And you could go to the non-smoking section, which was the one table yeah. right next yeah. to all the other smoking tables with no wall between it. You know what I mean? Like th that was in 35 years we made that transition. 
happen. I mean, there has to be an impact when you take all of society for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, starting to smoke and starting to drink at the age of 10 and change that. Of course, there's going to be a a ramification. It's so convenient. I think you're probably talking about um, like the, the ADD medicine, which is like, if you have depression, you can take Chantix. If you want to quit smoking, you can take Chantix. It, oh, do you now have ADD symptoms? You can take Chantix. It's, it's totally fine. It'll help you along the yeah. whole piece. Are you now depressed? Because you like, th- that is true. There is that social effect from the, the, the cutting out of drinking and smoking. There is that social loss that people don't account for. There's no, there's no chart that says, oh, hey, by the way, yeah. We have, uh, you know, reduced smoking by, uh, by 3%. However, socializing went down by 8%. I don't think there's a correlation there. I'm sure there is some, somewhere, somehow, whatever, not, not in my wheelhouse to go find. Yeah. Same thing with drinking, right? Like, I mean, again, for the love of God, alcoholics cause lots of problems. Let's just be clear, right? Like spousal abuse, child abuse, like all, all kinds of things. But at the same time, we also used to go out to lunch and have a three martini lunch. You know, I mean, that was, that, that was what you did. That was work. And it was, yeah. you know, it was what it was. And, and now that would be completely unacceptable. Uh, you know, and, and, but it's, it's just a kind of an interesting observation of, of how we've so dramatically changed society in, in 30 years. And then we're asking ourselves like, hey, why do we have all these emerging psychological disorders? I wonder, if, you know, the fact that we've changed our entire physiological, you know, chemical, chemical interaction. It's a great point, man. Like I could probably sit and talk with you about that with you for hours. I I think that's no, no, no. I think it's fascinating. Interesting piece. Like if you were here in LA, I'd say, Hey man, let's get together and talk about that. I'm really interested in, in digging into that. The interesting piece is would alcohol and tobacco be a part of the conversation, right? So most people go, Hey, let's go out for drinks. You know, like it, that's just a, mm-hmm. it's a social norm well, I mean, that you say, oh, hey, let's let's talk about that over drinks. Let's roll. But that is a comment. Yeah. So I've got I've got behind me this big bourbon and scotch collection that, you know, for me, I, how, how often do I drink it? You know, yeah. maybe once a week, m- maybe um, sometimes I'll have, you know, five or a week where I drink five or six times. But I, I'm not like a, a common drinker, but I love having it because it's sure. a great conversation starter. I sit down. I love sharing, right? I mean, and I've got I've got whiskeys here that you know there's maybe a couple hundred other bottles of this whiskey, and so having yeah. people over and getting to share that experience with them. That same guy, let me tell you, his name's Amin, by the way. So Amin, son of a gun, I I, I pour him. If anybody here's a, a whiskey drinker, you'll know this. Uh, Yamazaki Sherry Cask 2013. Freaking nuts! It was whiskey of the year, Scotch of the year. It was the first Scotch of the year uh, to not be from Scotland. And it was an amazing, it's still my, one of my favorite scotches, top two or three in the world. Pour each of us a shot while I sit and talking. And I get an excuse to hang out with two of my best friends. Sweet, 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 sweet. He drains it. This is yeah, a sipping yeah. whiskey, my friend. <laughs> and I was like, no longer my friend. So I don't talk to him anymore after that. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a huge thing, right? And, and it's, I, I think, there's a, there's a lot to do, you know, and we talked about kind of me developing my social norms, like in high school, similar thing. Like I didn't drink because my parents taught me not to drink. I didn't smoke. And so to be cool, I, you know, did a little bit of that. And, uh, and that was certainly part of how I 
tried to yeah. find my way to fit in with, uh, with did the your guys. parents support you? You know, like some of the challenges that I have, and I know a lot of the guys that come to the mental purpose world have are, um, my challenge was that I didn't feel supported and not that my parents didn't support me or make me feel safe is that inside my body, when I go to school and get rejected and I not couldn't figure out why the hell I couldn't be social or why I didn't like it. Like I'd force myself to be social and I just didn't like it. I just didn't give a shit what the other kids were talking about. I didn't care. I fucking, I didn't care. <laughs> I didn't, I, I bought the magic things. I bought pogs. I bought Pokemon cards. Like I bought all that shit. I didn't care about any of it. I just did it to fit in. But I, I, I didn't have parents yep. that were saying to me, Hey, so like, what's going on with you inside? What's, what's happening with you? Let's talk about that. It was just fit in, just go, you know, make friends. You got to have friends. Don't, don't alienate yourself. Did you have parents that supported you? My parents totally supported me. They, they loved me and, and did their best where my hangup was a little different, right? So my hangup was uh, when I was in high school, my mom got depressed. And so she was a psychiatrist and, uh, you know, she, I mean, super well-educated, right? And this is a, a woman who grew up in the fifties and sixties when it was, still hard for women to get into colleges and, and get into medical school. She went to Harvard. Uh, you know, I mean, she was really top of the top of the top. Um, she did research for the professor that discovered they had oh, double wow. helix and DNA, right? Like, I mean, she was, yeah. she was in it. Um, <clears throat> and then she met my dad and she kind of sub subverted part of her career from my dad's. And so she developed a degree of, uh, combination of depression and, um, uh, angst, anger towards him for, for making that sacrifice, if you will. And so as I got into high school, um, that started affecting our life. Now, as a kid, yeah. I wasn't aware of this, right? Like, you know, as a kid, I'm just going to high school and my parents are now a pain in the ass. That, yeah. <laughs> that was my observation as a high school, but they, you know, they showed up to my events. They, they supported me. They, they gave me role models. They flew me to the East coast to go to camp every summer um, which, which by the way, that camp, it was, it's called CTY center for talented youth out of Johns Hopkins university. It was like also yep. massively life-changing connecting me with other kids yep. that didn't fit in, you know, and then all of a sudden we could, we could, you know, uh, not fit in together. And, um, and so my parents really were very supportive where my gap yep. was, is I couldn't relate to them. And part of that was because, you know, you're a teenager, it's hard to relate to your parents. And I'm, a, I'm a, I've got a teenager now. And boy, oh boy, do I understand how it's hard to relate to a teenager. Holy, when the tables turn, you're just like, oh, obviously they're wrong. And uh, how could I have ever been so stupid? Uh, but, um, you know, it, it was more about relating to them. And then now, again, as a parent, as I'm reflecting back, I'm realizing that my yeah. parents were going through their own issues, right? Like my parents had not gotten the instruction book on how to not be asshole parents. Uh, which, which I, I believe is still it's, it's, uh, in pre-publication pre phases. Yeah. <laughs> pre it's, not, it's not out there yet. Uh, but my parents definitely didn't get their copy. And so, you know, now that I'm a parent and I reflect on that, holy moly, I, I understand what they're going through a lot more or what they went through a lot more. Um, but they, they were difficult to relate to. So the one thing I do try really hard with my kids is I try to, instead of you know sitting across from at the table and having a conversation about what's going on with you, I try to 
go where they're comfortable and be in their space so they feel safe and have those conversations. Describe that. Describe and that a little I'd bit. I'd say I'm doing a solid C plus. Yeah. So like my older daughter, she's a drama kid. <clears throat> she's a theater kid. She loves Glee. She loves Hamilton. She will sing Hamilton all day long. My younger daughter is a horse gal and she's 10 and she crushes at riding horses. She just learned how to ride horses during the pandemic and just completely fell in love with them. And so for each of them, um, I try to meet them, like call it 70% yeah. of the way to them. Um, I don't give up myself. I don't give up the rules that like, you know, you can't be rude. You can't, you know, be, be derogatory. You have to acknowledge me. We've got to be respectful in our language. But I, but I go more than 50% of the way to them. Uh, so with my older daughter, she likes to be in her bed in her room with her dog, with a little dog named Princess Buttercup. Uh, so, uh, yes, we had that, that's actually her name. And, uh, and so she sits with princess buttercup and I'll go in and I'll pet princess buttercup with her and let her talk first. That's thing. Number one, if she doesn't have anything to talk about, I will tell her something about myself because it's easier for her to hear about and sure. comment on something going on with me than it is for her to talk about herself. And then third, I will work that into kind of talking about her. So it's not kind of direct at the issue for my for my other daughter um where i i haven't entirely figured her out my, my 10 year old uh what i try to do with her is i try to go do an activity with her she likes jumping on the trampoline she likes kind of going outside and playing soccer Got and it. i try to talk to her Got in it. Those that's smart spaces. meet them where they are yeah yeah i mean one of the things i i, I again as it as it kind of coming from the autism perspective i try to learn Conflict is really challenging because I will naturally be yep. very highly conflictual. You say something, cool. I 100% disagree with you. That used to be a line that I used to say yeah. all the time. How does that make you feel? Pretty sweet, probably. Like, hey, this is going to be a really constructive conversation. That guy's ready to yeah. hear what I He's have. He's completely to say. receptive. Yes. <laughs> I 100% disagree with what you just said. And to me, it was like, you know exactly where I'm at. We can we can deal with each other. And in fact, what I learned is that is absolutely not true. And so uh, the, the 70, 60, 70, 75% number is actually really important. So if, I, if I'm in a conflict and somebody comes in my office and says, I'm really angry about this and I have a choice, how do I respond? And that's, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, that's how I am most of the time. I do have my emotional times where I just respond emotionally, but most of the time I'm in my kind of prefrontal cortex loop. And so I did a bunch of experiments. All right, cool. Let's respond at zero. Okay, what are you what are you upset about? Tell me. I could respond at 100%. Shut the hell up. Get out of here and 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 start over. And what I found is that at zero, <clears throat> people feel unheard. Meaning you just came in with a ton of emotion and I'm reflecting 0% of that emotion back to you. Which means I am not empathizing with your current situation. Uh, then at 20 or 30%, I'm empathizing, but I'm kind of mocking you at a hundred percent. I'm escalating because in your response, if you're, if you're upset and somebody comes back, cool, right. I get to come right. back at 120. Right. And then that just, you know, that that's pretty obvious what happens there at 60 to 70%. It's a full acknowledgement that you're really upset. I get it. What do you need me to do? All right, let's work this out. I'm not here. I'm not here. I'm not here. And and the the worst one I learned 
zero percent was was bad. Twenty to thirty percent was the worst every freaking time, because it it it, it acknowledged. I know that you're and, angry. I can tell that you want me to get upset, and I'm choosing to completely freaking ignore you. It was like it was truly really mocking interesting. You, your I, I think mo- people, some people would say <laughs> that what you did was diffusing. Like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna join you at this level. You come come down a little bit, and I'll and I'll play with you. Right. Maybe I'll take my 20 to 40. You take your hundred mm-hmm. to 60 and we'll meet there. It's an interesting experience. Yep. That's what I thought would happen. And it doesn't. And I, and I, I initially thought zero. Would what was your best, zero? Right? Honestly, looking at them and with your eyes and then looking back down. Tell me yeah. what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Oblivious. They pick your nose a little bit yeah. while they're talking, like whatever. <clears throat> And, and it just, it, it was really interesting when you look at this, I don't know if it has a term, right? Like just an emotional reflection that if you don't reflect enough emotional energy back, it's, it matters so much, really interesting. so, so much in terms of the way that people respond to you. Reflecting emotional energy. That's, it's a really interesting, it's, it's a cool conversation and it's a cool example because it's something that you really don't think about. We talk about conflict resolution, but we really don't talk about, and we talk about mirroring and matching like in sales, but we don't talk about when somebody comes in, what's, and they're at, they're fuming. What's going to be the most important thing for them to feel heard, feel seen, and be able to then diffuse the situation to where a, a productive conversation can actually happen. That's really interesting. I, I want to see a, I want to see a white paper on that. I, I went, you mentioned the word sales. I went from a, a person, again, as an engineer, a kind of technical person, where you build the product and then sales just does yeah. whatever they do to get it to the customer. Most important thing is engineering, least important thing is sales. That's a very West Coast, you know, that people say in, in Silicon Valley, people say, give me the best product in a, in a D minus sales team and I've got a company. And in New York, they say, give me a D minus product <laughs> and an A plus sales team and I'll give you a company. And, um, and, and over the years, I kind of started to understand sales, not from the perspective necessarily of a used car salesman, though, though by the way, don't discount a used car salesman. Um, the emotional intelligence required to read people, if you can insert high quality information and content into the EQ of a salesperson, what an amazing yeah. combination. And, uh, and so over the years, I've, I've come to really respect and, and appreciate. I, I like salespeople. I think um, I, I respect their art. I respect the ones that are good and they treat it like an art. They treat it like something they want to grow at. They use it to become smarter and better at themselves. They, they then become a lot more effective at picking the companies they go to and picking the products that they sell because they want to, they realize I've got this like superpower. How do I use it in a, in a constructive way? What's up, guys? I'm so sorry to interrupt the episode. I just need one minute to share with you all the new and exciting, amazing stuff we've got created here at Men on Purpose. First of all, thank you for listening to the podcast and supporting the movement we're creating for all the men of the world. Next, you've got to check out our new website, menonpurpose.net, where you'll find all kinds of cool stuff, including links to our podcast and the free Men on Purpose community. You're also going to find our new free purpose-driven formula mini course and ebook and links to all of our new coaching programs and products. Look, I've had so many of you ask me where to get started with your personal growth journey or where you can go to level up. So I put this thing together, this free ebook and mini course, and we're going to be talking about and coaching you through a really light version of our purpose-driven formula, which is our foundational formula. 
And for those of you who are ready now, we got you. Listen up, whether it's becoming the best husband, being the best dad, quitting that job that doesn't serve you, or just understanding how to put you first, we've got what you need to align with your authentic self and find that true fulfillment and live a life with no regrets. Look, we're helping men with structure, support, and sustainability. That's what you've asked for, and that's what we deliver. As we lead you through proven and tested curriculum that focuses on formulas to help you get farther faster. So make sure you go to menonpurpose.net, click the button to download our free, powerful, purpose-driven formula mini course and ebook. And while you're there, make sure you check out some of our amazing products designed to help you find your purpose, stop self-sabotage, and dial in your mindset, skills, and habits to evolve into the best version of you. Why? Because we want you to live and have the best life possible. No regrets. So menonpurpose.net, let's get back to the episode. Yeah, yeah. So I want to I want to jump forward to college. You sure. left co- you left college for a startup, and then yep. the startup failed. What that happens? I, I, and my my my, you know, I, dude, your your bio and your resume is huge, right? Like I told you before we started recording, there's not a lot. There's not a lot of like. There's not a big bio that I get with a lot of people. Yours is like I, I thought. How old is this guy? Like in his seventies with a bio with a resume <laughs> like this. It. Then I saw you're in your forties and went, holy shit. Wow. What, what I want to, where I kind of want to show the turn here is you leave college for a startup and you leave Stanford, right? It's not, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't leave Suffolk community college. You left Stanford, right? So nothing bad about Suffolk you, community college though. No, no, just, there's a little, there's a little difference, just a sure. tad, just sure. a little difference. Um, and Are you scared? Are you, I mean, are you confident? Are you, what's going on? And then when the thing fails, are you like, fuck man, I made a, I made a terrible decision. Like, what do I do now? Did you feel that at all? Or were you just so focused on forward progression that you just like another bump in the road? Let's roll. In in terms of the decision to leave, um, things that happen to me, I emotionally interpret different than the things that I do. Um, and, and this has changed over time, but I'm, I'll talk about like 25 year old me, 20 year old me, 20, 25 year old me saw the path to success. And that was it. So any decision right. that I made, the likelihood that I was like second guessing it and like, Oh, this is scary. Nah. Right. I mean, if it was, it was my decision, it was just like, this is obviously the right thing to do. Kind of like, I a hundred percent disagree with you. I, I a hundred percent support my decisions because they're a hundred percent correct. And I have a hundred percent research them and you're a hundred percent wrong. If you disagree with me even a little bit, that, that was the perspective I brought to any decision that yeah, I made. Yeah. That said though, what that led to is that when things happened to me, if I made a decision that I was a hundred percent, you know, sure of, and something went wrong, I became pretty crisis oriented, right? Like my, my failures weren't, um, weren't moderate. I, I didn't have a lot of moderate failures. I had things that basically entirely blew up, um, and things that worked that would, that would be in general, my career, you know, one, ones and zeros. I don't really have a lot of like, Oh, right. that, was, that was kind of decent, you know, do that if you want to. I never worked an hourly job. Um, you know, more than beyond college. Uh, and, uh, and I did work a, a number of hourly jobs during college, but I mean, in terms of like career decisions, everything was either a startup and, and, and either you know, kind of took off or blew up. And so, you know, on my bio, if you were to actually take it and add in all the failures, it'd probably be about twice as long as the one that you yeah, got. Of course. And, and I mean, how are you dealing with failure at that point? 
I guess at that point, there's not a lot to lose, right? There's not a lot to, well, I mean, there is, depending on yeah, what, I mean, you, what your definition of to lose is. I mean, my, my definition included the opportunity cost, right? And that's where my feeling of loss was massive. There's a, um, it's a whole bunch of founder-based psychology about how entrepreneurs interpret failure and why they put so much energy into things. And a lot of that's because they blur the line between what they're doing and who they are. And that's a really, really positive thing in that you see immense amounts of energy. I am willing to go to any length because I'm not doing something. This represents who I am. And if I don't give it 100%, and if I fail because I don't give it 100%, then I am a failure. It's not I failed at this. I am a failure because the, the line has completely disappeared. And so there's, there's something immensely positive about that in the sense that, you know, if you look at Silicon Valley and the way that, on, that, that VCs like to invest, they love investing in 24-year-olds that don't see the distinction because they're either going to make a ton of money or they'll lose it all and then move on to the next one. And, uh, and as long as the space that those people are operating in, you know, I'd, I'm basically sending a completely volatile 100% energy atom into this new market, right? Crypto, let's say. And it's going to move around super fast and it's either going to shoot out the other side as a success or shoot out the other side as a failure. And I'll know pretty quickly which one I got. If it's a big enough market, that's an odd, that you know, those are odds that are worth taking. The thing that you don't think about, that's the VC's perspective. That's the market's perspective. That's what it means in the theory of Silicon Valley and technology. What it means for that atom, though, for that particular atom, is that atom's either, you know, a millionaire or that atom's exploding and all by itself in space, you know, never to return. And so as I've gotten older, I've learned to, as much as possible, harness the energy, but to separate out the sense of self because uh, it's it's dangerous, right? I mean, I think, I think it's amazing to pour that level of intensity. It's amazing to direct that level of energy. Um, but again, if I can move that from my body and in my soul and in my emotions and in my, my endocrine system into my prefrontal cortex, where it's no longer something that's happening to me, I am making the decision with my current company, which is, which is Deep Sentinel. It's a security company. I make the decision every day to wake up early. I make the decision to pour 110% in everything I do. I make the decision to hire the best people I can find even if they have issues and, and to make them work. I make the decision to fire people. I, and, I, and I do all of those things with 110%, but not because I've confused it with who I am anymore. I do it because I choose to. And so, you know, I mean, I think one of the, the things my wife and I talk about is it sucks getting old, but uh, it, it's because the price we're paying for the wisdom is probably worth it. Yeah, dude, that, I mean, that's a, I think I'm going to make that the title, the price we pay for, the price we pay for wisdom. And, and, uh, what's, what, it's so interesting what you were saying, because you and I know a lot of people who confuse mix, right? The, their identity in with the job. And that's why we have that, like I was telling you about what men on purpose is guys come to us who are like, man, I've been an attorney or I've been a, a, a guy in, in Hollywood, or I've been a, 
you know, whatever it might be. I've been a sales guy for 25 years and 25 of those years I have spent in resistance knowing it's not right, but it made me who I am. It made my identity. It got me the cash for that car, which got me into that car club, which made me likable and important and got me the house that the, my kids' friends want to come over. And it got me the country club membership and it got me, it got me that stuff, which formed even more solid the identity that wasn't me. So these guys are coming to us and they're saying, I've been living this lie for, for too long and I need to find out who I am. So what you're saying in terms of we're separating that, the identity and the, and the trajectory of your effort and your energy, that's a massively important detail right there. Massively. Yeah, important. I mean, I, I, I've struggled with it a lot. So when I, when I retired from my last company, I left, it was doing like 40 million in revenue and I was like, all right, sweet, I'm done working. And I, within two weeks, was back in my lab. I have a robotics, like an electronics lab. That's where I'm in right yeah. now in this office. And then I have a mechanical lab down in my garage where I've got pulleys and gears and, you know, a full shop and stuff like that. And I've got a, and I've got a welding shed, um, which by the way, I'm super proud of, cause that's like a manly thing to do. So I'm, <laughs> yeah, I can weld, <laughs> um, but uh, I'm not very good at it. So let's not, let's not pretend, but I found that within two weeks I was back doing that. And so that was a really important observation to me because I had tried to fully separate the two and say, I just am a dad and a husband and a a person, and I'm going to make the world a better place with that. And I'm going to abandon this kind of work thing. And what I came to realize, for me at least, was that work is really, 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 really important. It just isn't everything yeah. and giving it that context has worked very well for me uh, because n- number one, I, I have a lot of friends um, who've made, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars um, in the last 20, 30 years. And I've had the opportunity to observe some of them and see how happy they are, how fulfilled they are in their lives. And you know, there's a bunch of studies about this publicly, but I can tell you anecdotally that the the people that I know that have made tons more money than me are not happier than me. Some of them are, I'm sure, uh, but on average, they're pretty average, if not slightly below average. Um, and and so I really wanted to study what that difference was, and and, and to go back to the point about the importance of work. <clears throat> I also then looked at their kids. So some of these guys are now, they're all, all for the most part, guys. There's a couple of women that, that I've known that have gotten really wealthy as well. Um, I went and I met their kids and some of the kids were completely a mess because they, they had trouble finding purpose in life because their parents didn't model that work. Well, not everything in life is an important part of identity. It's an important part of relating to the people around you. It's an important part of relating to the entire world and society around you. What are you contributing? What does society request of you? What is your commitment to society? So in the, in the extreme, a lawyer or a physician makes an oath and that's part of your contribution to society. That's part of who you are. Um, it allows you to say, I am a lawyer. Now you don't have to be a lawyer and that's who you are hundred percent, but it allows you to have that sentence. Whereas 
I am a trust fund kid whose dad made $5 billion investing in the stock market. <clears throat> and I own three Ferraris and I buy a new one every month and, and trade in my old ones. Hmm. You, nothing. You have nothing to offer me. I have nothing to offer you. And I don't really want to have anything to offer you. Like you you're boring. And that is a huge, really, mental kind of issue. And so going back to my personal experience that informed a decision that, that again I made with my wife and, and, and with my kids that I was going to start this I was going to start another company and I'm going to do it in the way that I described where I am going to work 12 hours a day I'm going to work 15 hours a day sometimes I'm going to work 18 hours a day sometimes but I'm not going to do it every day and I'm not going to do it when it's not needed and I'm not going to let it poison our family uh, but I'm going to bring my kids into it so my kids if you look at the deep sentinel commercials my kids are in our deep sentinel commercials if you uh, come to our house and ask us, you know, what Deep Sentinel does, my kids will be the first people to jump up and say, can I tell them? Can I tell them? Can I show them? And when we have issues, we, we had to do a, a layoff three years ago when the, when the market kind of turned against us. And my kids, you know, knew about that. And, and, it was, and it was part of a decision and a discussion that we have as a family. And so it was the act of bringing work into this sacred place that is our family, not letting work define that sacred place that is your family. And again, just like everybody else, I'm in the process of figuring it out, but it, it is something that I think we've done. We've done a lot better than I thought we were going to do and a lot better than we were doing a couple of years ago. I dude, I mean, in the, it, the last 10 minutes, you dropped so many bombs. I'm like running out of ink. Like, the way you phrase things and put it together is so it's like I, I you you speak you speak the language that we have here, which is awesome. Sometimes I get people on here that just don't speak the language. It's very like it's really clear. <clears throat> and I understand that that mindset and mentality. Like you're a fellow intense guy. I just know it. You're you got you're an intense guy, right? You put our ass into things. Yeah, what I learned in in my real estate career. Uh, I, I worked for my shop, my father's shipping company in my twenties, in my thirties, I had this very successful real estate practice. And, um, and I learned that I was letting my hard work and my determination and my work ethic poison my family. And that is a thing that I had to get away from. And I had to learn how to separate the identity. I'm not a real estate agent. I'm in, and something that I do to earn some cash and to help the world in some capacity. <laughs> is as a real estate agent. And that was a really tough thing for me to do. I, I, honestly, really tough. Today, being a coach, running this, I, ca I can work 15 hours a day sometimes. There's Saturdays where I just put on headphones, put on like binaural beats or some kind of repetitive, and not binaural beats, you know what I'm talking about. And I'm just in it. And my wife's like, did you see me come in at all? Stand next to you, talk to you? And I'm like, no, focus. Yet when I'm off, I'm off. I'm out. Yep. I'm I'm not yep. focused on anything work. I'm I'm hanging with the kids and I'm doing that. And that's the majority of my week. And some people say, well, couldn't you make a lot more money if you dedicated way more time? I'm like, yeah, I could. But I'm not willing to live with the regret of not spending that time with my kids. I'm just not. I, 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 yep. I've seen too many guys do that. I coach too many guys. And you're also counting on me to say, hey, I, I live this authentically and I can teach you how to do it too. So speaking of real estate, I want to get into like, we've already gone 45 minutes. I want to get into the Amazon thing real quick and the, and sure. the Redfin thing. So Amazon, you were in early. Yep. Programming, working on stuff, 
alongside of Jeff, and, um, and and for those of you who were living under a rock for the last 20 years, Jeff Bezos, like the Amazon founder, um, I'm pretty sure when you say Jeff and Amazon, people know who you're talking about. Just want to make that Usually, distinction. Yeah. Um, what was that like? And was he more intense than you? Was he so damn focused? And the other question in that is, how do you know when a vision like, how does Jeff know that the vision was this? This is the direction. Because there was a bio that I read on you where it said, like, when you first joined, you guys would present something to him. And he's like, it's completely wrong. And we'll, like, we'll meet every day until we figure this shit out. Get out. And yeah. by the way, it doesn't make money. It needs to make money. Where's the money? Let's go. How, how, do you, how does he know? Or how do you know as a visionary and a founder? How do you know that your idea is that on? And you've got to keep following this path versus shifting paths because all the other smart people around you are saying, no, we should change this. Uh, sure. So a bunch of questions there. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, Jeff, I would say is, is more intense than I am um, for sure. Um, but I, I think we have a lot of similarities. I actually went to a, a customer site a little while ago um, and I had a bunch of people that were listening to me talk and they were like, are you, are you Jeff Bezos? And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's funny you'd ask. Um, we're both both bald and about uh, five six, but uh, he's in better shape than I am anymore now. So um, yeah, I mean, he he is really intense. He's incredibly intelligent. Where I think you know, there's a there's a combination of two things that I attribute to him, and both are I think in in and of themselves very difficult. The first one is he has a very right view of the long-term future. And when I say long-term, I don't mean, you know, one or two years, like this isn't, uh, you know, Wall Street trading from, this is 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 100 years from now. <clears throat> and that view of the future, he allows to guide how he makes strategic decisions today, which is really hard to do. Mm -hmm. uh, when you want to make, more profit today. It's very hard to believe that uh, things are going to be way different in 10 years. And, and specifically, let me give you the precise example of this, was that in 2002, 2001, 2002, which is when I, I joined, uh, 2002 when I joined Amazon, uh, the Wall Street Journal used to run a story literally every single month saying, is this the month Amazon goes out of business? Because they're, they were not profitable. They were growing sales dramatically. And his vision of the future was that everything would be bought online. Everything would have either a direct or an indirect element of from research to purchasing would be on the internet. And he didn't care about making profit now. So long as he had investors who would fund him to get to tomorrow and yep. that tomorrow he was able to double his sales into the vision 20 years from now or 100 years from now when everything would be bought online at which point you would own everything by the way that's today okay yeah. is anybody's not following this path <laughs> right um you know he was willing to delay profitability and delay profitability and delay profitability and delay profitability and we used to have to have the cfo come to our all hands our team meetings and say hey guys i'm tom just want to let you know here's how much cash we have in the bank 
you don't need to worry about the article that you just saw in the Wall Street Journal because here's what we're doing that's awesome and awesome and awesome and awesome and awesome. And here's what you're doing that's awesome. And that's the vision part. And I thought that was amazing. Um, The second thing he does, which is in contrast with that, and this is why it's so hard, like life, you know, great successes and and, and great stories, I think, are are these uh, paradoxes, right, that, that can't coexist, was that he was willing to listen to the data from today. And in terms of finding the path to that future, as long as it didn't betray the vision, and he thought that the path that we should go is straight towards there. If the data said you had to go this way in order to get there, he would do it. Yeah. He would turn 90 degrees the other direction. He'd turn 180 degrees the other direction. If what the data showed him was that it was wrong. Let me give you a case in point strategically that we would all be familiar with, right? So we all have an, I'm going to unplug my here. We all have an Alexa everywhere in our homes. We have a fire. I just bought a freaking fire TV for the love of God. Um, it's a TV that literally cannot function without Alexa. Like how insane is that? I, I, I never would have thought of that. Um, but it's a great TV actually. It's, it's the best TV we have in our house. I was, I was blown away by it. Um, and Amazon's first device, they knew they needed to get into people's hands. They knew they needed to get into people's homes. Do you remember what the first device was? The Kindle? So the first device was the, the Kindle. Do you know what the second device was? Which was true to form. That's books. Easy, very linear. Uh, f- uh, fire stick? Fire phone. Fire phone. I don't think I remember that. Yep, that's right. That's exactly the correct response. So I, 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 you've given me exactly the correct fodder. Yeah. It was super committed to this. They invested hundreds of millions of dollars into developing it. They built their own browser. They built a, uh, an internet accelerator because they thought the most important thing for a phone was to speed up the internet. Hmm. It was the fastest browser on there, but it sucked. It was just a terrible device. And so he listened to the data. He listened to the data that told him, Amazon's not really good at doing this yet. Try some other devices that will work better. Kindle Fire tablet, mm-hmm. much better, right? Integrates what they're good at. The reader integrates the, the fire. Then, then you get into the, the TV and the entertainment, right? And, and so he has this great ability to combine these two skills that he didn't abandon his vision of Amazon being part of every transaction and Amazon being in your home and Amazon having devices, but he also didn't ignore the fact on the ground that his phone sucked. Yeah. And, and the ability to do that, um, there's a book behind me called Good to Great. Um, oh, yeah. And I think it's called The Stockdale Paradox, right? It's the ability to remain always optimistic. And I, I would trade always optimistic with always driving towards your clear vision of the future. Right. Without ignoring the facts on the ground of today. And the ability to hold those two things together that's amazing. Yeah. That's so neat, man. I mean, I think I could do, I could do an, I could do an entire episode of asking you questions from that business. And I want to make sure that we, we are tied in here with time. So you leave Amazon and where does Redfin come in? It's so interesting to me as again, being a former real estate agent, you, you are a disruptor. Like, like, uh, you know, like you think about like a uh, Keller Williams was a, was a category disruptor at the time. Gary Keller's vision was so clear that with these lumbering giants, Coldwell, Century 21, these lumbering giants that have since adopted those philosophies, 
you come in with an idea that is so crazy today. It's like, it's like normal. So crazy. How the hell did you come up with that? How did you think it was going to work? Why did you think it was going to work? What gave you the confidence? And, and why were you even interested in that market? So real estate, I was interested in because I wanted to buy a house and I had a real estate agent who had dropped out of high school and was advising me on the right price to pay for an $850,000 house in Seattle based on his failing understanding of algebra. And I realized that this person was about to make, you know, if you, if you do the math, right, it's a 3% um, seller's fee. Uh, he's making $24,000 by giving me bad advice and just happened to be in the right place at yes. the right time. Yeah. Um, and with all respect to everybody that, that's a real estate agent doing their best, like go at it, go make yours. But holy living God, was I going to let someone like that provide bad information to me, then provide bad analysis based on his bad information and guide a decision that would like really significantly impact my entire financial future. Yeah. And so I started researching and I found that that guy was not the exception. That guy was more the rule than the exception. Yeah. And so I became very impassioned about how do we break the disparity of information because the MLS would provide this special information to him that was equivalent to what you could get in public records, but, but wasn't available. So I just became very engrossed in that market and, and changing what I saw as a, as a great injustice. And um, I found some other people that were felt the same way. They'd already started a company. Um, and so I joined them as a co-founder uh, they were building um, Windows PC-based software for agents. And we started asking the question, well, what, what would happen if we got these data and we published it to the entire internet? Yeah. What would happen if we made the user interface a thousand times better so that people would want to buy real estate using the internet? And, um, and what would happen if we could reduce the cost of selling by 70% because we, we allow people to do all their research online instead. And we just developed this thesis around that. And um, it took about eight months to build the first version of that app. We, we put together a team of moonlighters from Amazon and, and Microsoft and, and places like that. And, uh, and over the course of eight months, we built the first interactive mapping application on the web. So a lot of people don't realize this about Redfin, but Redfin actually built the very first interactive maps as well. Yeah. These are, before Google Maps, before Yahoo Maps uh, could could scroll, and it was revolutionary. And so that really was part of the motivation too, is that we were building something that you could tell as a user, once we build this, the world's never going back to the old way of mapping. Yeah. How do you feel about being a, a, an, an innovator at, at the cutting edge of innovation? You invented a category, you changed the way that real estate is done, the Zillows, the Trulia's, the every other flipping site out there is following that lead. What does that make you feel like? I'm just curious. I mean, it's, it's great. It's neat to show my kids and say like, hey, look, like here's here's this thing that was inspired by work that I did and I'm part of a community, right? Again, yeah. kind of talking about like work being part of belonging. I don't take credit for Google Maps. There's a whole team at Google that built sure. it and did their whole thing but they were absolutely and unconditionally inspired by and would not have created Google Maps had Redfin not launched. Sure. And that's killer, right? Like that's neat. That's neat to be able to, to share that with my kids and tell them about it. Um, you know, and, and again, I, I think I look at it through that lens. What was my contribution to the world and to the community? 
Um, you can look at it from a financial lens. I've learned to separate the financial lens from it, though, because, you know, you talked about living without regrets. And there's so many decisions that, that, that we could have made that would have had to, oh, if I only would have bet on number nine, you know, that's just a dumb way of looking at the world. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, oh, sure. That's, yeah. If only you bet on number, if only put $100,000 that I didn't have, or if only I would have second mortgaged my house. And, you know, <laughs> just, just dumb. That's a dumb perspective. And yeah. so, my view of kind of contributions to the world are entirely from the like, how do we work together? How do I project that into my family? How do I encourage my kids to do similar things, whether that's through the arts or through, through, you know, their activities on a daily basis. But um, that act of being engaged with the world and a part of the world and that the world is a part of us that's you know, one of the key things that my wife and I think about a lot and we talk about as what we want to give to our, our kids. Yeah. It's just, I'm telling you, man, I could do it. I could do a whole nother. I, I really need to have you back on if you'd be open to it. Cause I really want to dig into the lessons you learn from these places. I know the, I know the fan mail is going to pile in. Like, People can listen to this episode and go, well, why didn't you ask him about this? Oh, I'm, I'm a star. I'm a startup <laughs> guy. And I want to know about this. And I want like, there's sure, I mean, man. I'm happy to come back. Hey, happy it's to what come happens when you have a resume like yours, man. And you take these type of chances. Last thing I, I want to ask you about your morning routine. Um, mm. You do the same thing every day. I have adopted this morning routine where I do the same thing every day. And I also wear the same clothes every day. I threw out everything. And I just started wearing either a black t-shirt or a black man on purpose t-shirt because I don't want decision fatigue. And I want to be, I want all my, my available that I'm willing to give mind share and power and energy to go to the mental purpose world. And the rest of it goes to my kids and vice versa. And that's it. So I cut mm -hmm. out a lot of stuff yep. from my life. Are you like that too? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a budgeting exercise to me. Um, again, kind of going back to my mathematical roots, right? Um, everything that you have a limited amount to spend time, energy, effort, uh, cognitive thinking, all of those things have a either hard or quasi hard limit to them on a daily basis in terms of how you spend them. Uh, the second thing that I look at is, um, are things additive or are they attacks? So like if I have a great breakfast in the morning, does that really change the rest of my day or is it, is it a task that doesn't have an impact? So like, you know, you mentioned I have it, I have the same routine in the mornings. I do. Um, what I don't talk about often is like on the weekends, I actually do have a different breakfast because that's additive to my day. So on the weekends, I will cook pancakes for my kids and I cook character pancakes. And the reason that matters is because it goes from being a task to now I have kind of an open schedule in front of me and I can use it as a way to grow my relationship with my kiddos. And when they have friends over, it's their favorite thing to show off. They wake up in the morning and like, oh, my God, do you want Elsa or do you want, you know, Elf or, or you know, do you want <laughs> – uh, one of our dogs as your pancake for breakfast and, and we make them together and we design them and, and we do that. And so the things that are not additive, just like you said, your, your outfit, um, as much as possible, I try to reduce their impact on my day. So like I have the, this shirt I have uh, in 10 colors. So I do have a little bit. I, I like picking colors. I like colors. Uh, but I have the exact same shirt uh, and I wear the same shirt pretty much every single day, but I have 20 of them. Um, 
and they're all rolled up the same way in the same drawer, you know, every day. Um, then there are uh, the the foods I eat for breakfast. So every day during the week, I tend to eat a sausage. I heat it in the air fryer, and I'm off to the races. I cut them up. I actually cut them up once a week, put them in a, a Tupperware bowl. So I just pull it out of the refrigerator, throw six or seven slices in the um, in the air fryer, and then head out. Um, and what I find is that that allows me two things. The second perspective I have is I suck in the morning. Um, and so it allows me to look like I'm the most productive person in the world. Cause I just, and it's not that I have a ton of energy in the morning. It's that I am reenacting a full, uh, you know, just, just rhythmic, uh, instinct. And so I don't have to expend energy to do that. And so therefore my wife's like, Oh my God, you wake up when you have so much energy in the morning. How do you, and I don't. I just, I'm a full zombie. I'm not even awake yet. Like you don't even exist. Don't talk to me. I'm just going through my routine. And, uh, and so it allows me to kind of take advantage of that time too. So by, you know, if I'm getting up at like 6.30 by like 7.30, I am awake and I've already finished all the, the stuff I don't have to do. I mean, you're really specific though with the journal that you use. And I remember reading yeah. something that somebody sent me about you um, that said, it specifically said this is the journal and it's not recycled paper. It's white, regular paper. Like, is that, is that accurate? Yeah. 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 It's uh. let me see, where is it? Let's tell the audience what journal you use. They're going to, they want a brand called McQuellrius. It's, it's manufactured in Spain. Um, they are welcome to hire me as their spokesperson anytime soon, but I spent five years testing out different notebooks. I tested out a different notebook every month for five years and about 60 of them. And I went from large format to small format. I tried different types of paper. I tried different bindings. Huh. And what I, the reason I chose this one, sorry. It, it's, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Cause like my, my binding, and I don't even think about this. Now you're going to make me even more obsessed. My wife's going to thank you for this. Like, this is what it should look like. And this is what it does look like. Cause the bindings fail. Huh. So now I get it. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, that's exactly right. So like the, the, it was really popular for a while to have a red black book in New York. That was like the thing all the wall street traders had for a while. And I tried it and, and, and the binding was one of the things that failed. If I brought it with me everywhere, if you're in a New York trading desk, it's okay. Cause you're just moving from office to office. But if you're actually moving, you're flying, you're doing stuff, it, it fails. So the McQuarrius has a plastic cover. It's a hard plastic cover, which means I can write on it. I can uh, write checks on it with a pen and it goes through. Um, it doesn't break. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't get waterlogged. So it's, it's a little bit more kind of weather resistant. The size of the paper is eight inches high by six inches wide. Uh, I have a stack of the exact same ones. And that's because if I go to larger format, I end up wasting a lot of paper because of my methodology for taking notes. And then secondly, it just, it just doesn't fit very well in my backpack and doesn't work. It's a spiral bound because uh, for, for two, three reasons. Number one, it's easy for me to tear something out. So if I do need a piece of paper to remove, which I don't do very often, but if I do, it's easy to do it and it doesn't affect the other pages. If you have a flat binding, it affects all the other pages. Yeah. You lose all the rest of your pages. I also can put a pencil in that. So I keep my pencil in the binding. Um, and then last thing is because it has a plastic outbound, I buy these uh, 3M stickets and I stick these on the outside and I have two of them in use at any time. The first one is my current to-do list. And so I have a, a tab on my current to-do list. And then the second one is 
the, the most important page for me to read and go back to. And then the pencil is inserted at the current page. So when I open up the binding, I pull my pencil out, I'm on my current page. If I need to go to my to-do list, I can find that quickly. And if I have anything really important strategically that I'm thinking about or I'm doing a brainstorm, it's there. It's white paper because recycled paper tears too easily. I use a 0.9 millimeter pencil and that's too sharp for recycled paper. It will tear it. And it's a grid paper with very, very light grid lines. So I can use the grid lines if I want to, but if I want to just write text, it doesn't distract from the writing of the text. Wow, man. I really appreciate that. I, I really do. <laughs> I really appreciate that. What's the it longest called again? speech anyone's ever given about a notebook. No, it, dude, it, it, but here's the thing. Why I appreciate it is because it means something to you and kind of like the morning routine, you can be a zombie because you have a system that allows you to not channel too much brain energy out. That's exactly right. And this is exactly all, you. I think you're a little bit more intense than I am. My brain, <laughs> I do not want to think about things that are inconsequential or that don't matter or that I think are wasting my time because I think I have a, a very big job to do for this world. And when it comes to things like that, you're thinking about, you know, the millimeter of your pencil, the sharpness and, and the paper type, you cannot be interrupted by a torn piece of paper. I mean, dude, it sounds crazy to the average person. I fucking get it. I get it. I, I get it. And I'm so, I'm so glad to have met you. A fellow. Well, if you, if you want, the next time we talk, I'll walk you through how I manage my to-do list because that is itself an entire system as well. And the, and what it's all designed around, though, is it sounds really intense. It's so that doing stuff isn't intense. If I'm not having a good day and I don't know how to think or I'm hungover, let's just I don't get hungover very often, but you know, like once I, I get hungover once a you know every other day. Um, but if you know if I wake up and I'm hungover and I don't know, like oh, what do I do today? Boom, here's my list. Right. Right. And, I, and I don't have to think about it. I don't have to look at for it. I don't have to have an assistant tell me what to do. Everything is just maintained in this very, very low cost, very consistent system yeah. that is all instinctual and habitual. Now. It is a high level of and, responsibility. And that's how I do it. High level of responsibility, high level of accountability that has a ripple effect to the rest of your life. A real ripple effect. I, I believe so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, and, and the, the negative of it though is... <laughs> My wife's always like, "Oh my God, are you gonna are you gonna help me try to get this done too now?" And I was like, "Ah, whatever. We'll 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 let that one slip today." I'm definitely gonna book with you again and spell the name of that journal, the 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 book. It's oh wow, I uh, Miquelrius, M I Q, E L R I U S. Got it. Okay. Um, they're they're distributed more in the U.S. They used to only be sold in Spain. So my assistant used to buy a crate of them for me and ship them to the United States and have the have a crate of them at the office. So at any time, if I burned through one, I would have a second one. That's so cool, man. Dude, it has been a pleasure talking to you. And, and it's very rare that I get off an episode this long and have a thousand more questions for you. And I didn't even I didn't even get to half the stuff that I wrote down here. Not even I didn't even get to a tenth of it. So, uh, yeah, this is awesome. I really appreciate your time, your wisdom. It's it's so nice to meet somebody that's, that's also productively obsessive. <laughs> well, thanks Ian. I appreciate yeah. it. I enjoyed it a ton. Yeah. Thanks so much. And uh, tell people where they can find you, uh, deep Sentinel stuff you're working on. Yeah, for sure. So deep Sentinel is a security company. We're the only security company that takes cameras 
we add artificial intelligence and that artificial intelligence immediately connects your cameras to live guards that can prevent crimes. Uh, Deep Sentinel, you can learn more about us and watch a ton of videos of us stopping crimes, everything from like catalytic converter theft to assaults and battery, like real serious kind of personal crimes um, at uh, deepsentinel.com or you can go on our YouTube channel, which is on YouTube and just search for Deep Sentinel, S-E-N-T-I-N-E-L. And then the other places you can go on to LinkedIn and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Got it. Got it. Awesome, man. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And audience, uh, I hope you enjoyed this whole episode. If you need more, go to deepsentinel.com or go to mentalpurposepodcast.com or mentalpurpose.net. You'll find all everything about Dave in the show notes and uh, we'll catch you on the next one.